Chapter 29 of Plum Pudding, of diverse ingredients, discreetly blended and seasoned. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Plum Pudding, of diverse ingredients, discreetly blended and seasoned, by Christopher Morley. Chapter 29 magic and salamis. Why is it, we were wondering, as we walked to the station, that these nights of pearly wet Long Island fog make the spiders so active? The sun was trying to break through the mist, and all the way down the road, trees, bushes, and grass were spangled with cobwebs, shining with tiny pricks and gems of moisture. These damp, mildewy nights that irritate us and bring that queer, soft, grayish fur on the backs of our books, seem to mean high hilarity and big business to the spider. Along the hedge near the station there were wonderful great webs as big as the shield of Achilles. What a surprising passion of engineering the spider must go through in the dark hours to get his struts and cantilevers and his circling gossamer girders properly disposed on the foliage. Footnote Perhaps the structural talent of our Salamis arachnids is exceptional. Perhaps it is due to the fact that the famous Engineers Country Club is nearby. Can the spiders have learned their technology by watching those cheerful scientists on the golf greens? End of footnote. Darkness is no difficulty to him, evidently. If he lays his web on the grass, he builds it with a little tunnel leading down to earth, where he hides waiting his breakfast. But on such a morning, apparently with thousands of webs ready, there can hardly have been enough flies to go around, for we saw all the appetent spiders had emerged from their tubes and were waiting impatiently on the web itself, as though the host should sit on the tablecloth waiting for his guest. Put a finger at the rim of the web and see how quickly he vanishes down his shaft. Most surprising of all, it is to see the long threads that are flung horizontally through the air, from a low branch of a tree to the nearby hedge. They hang elastic and perfect, sagged a little by a run of fog drops almost invisible, except where the wetness catches the light. Some were stretched at least six feet across space, with no supporting strands to hold them from above, and no branches from which the filament could be dropped. How is it done? Does our intrepid weaver hurl himself madly six feet into the dark, trusting to catch the leaf at the other end? Can he jump so far? All this sort of thing is, quite plainly, magic. It is rather important to know, when you're dealing with magic, just where ordinary life ends and the mystery begins, so that you can adjust yourself to incantations and spells. As you make your green escape from town, which has magic of its own, but quite different, you must clearly mark the place where you pierce the veil. We showed it to Endymion lately. We will tell you about it. There is a certain point, as you go out to Salamis on the railroad, when you begin to perceive a breath of enchantment in the landscape. For our own part, we become aware of a subtle spice of grammary as soon as we see the station lamps at East Williston which have tops like little green hats. 
lamps of this sort have always had a fascination for us, and whenever we see them at a railway station we have a feeling that that would be a nice place to get off and explore. And of course, after you pass East Williston, there is that little pond in which, if one went fishing, he could very likely pull up a fine fleecy cloud on his hook. Then the hills begin, or what we on Long Island consider hills. There are some fields on the left of the train that roll like great green waves of the sea. They surge up against the sky and seem about to spill over in a surf of daisies. A quiet road runs up a hill, and as soon as you pass along its green channel, between rising thickets where rabbits come out to gape, you feel as though walking into a poem by Walter de la Mer. This road, if pursued, passes by a pleasing spot where four ways cross in an attenuated X. Off to one side is a field that is very theatrical in effect. It always reminds us of a stage set for As You Like It, the Forest of Arden. There are some gigantic oak trees and even some very papier-mâché-looking stumps, all ready for the duke and other lords like foresters to do their moralizing upon. And in place of the poor sequestered stag, there is a very fine plushy cow, grazing hard by a very agreeable morass. At the back, L-U-E, is discovered a pleasing ruin, the carcass of an ancient farmstead, whose stony ribs are thick-set with brambles, and the pleasant melancholy of an abandoned orchard rounds off the scene and the wings, giving a fine place for Rosalind and Celia and the lake-weary touchstone to abide their cue. Choosing the left-hand arm of the X and moving past wild rose bushes toward the even richer rose garden of the sunset, the fastidious truant is ushered, as was our friend Endymion the other evening, upon a gentle meadow where a solitary house of white stucco begs for a poet as occupant. This house, having been selected by Titania and ourself as a proper abode for Endymion and his family, we waited until sunset, frog song, and all the other amenities of life in Salamis were suitable for the introduction of our guest to the scene. This dwelling, having long lain untenanted, has a back door that stands ajar, and we piloted the awestruck lyrist inside. Now nothing rages so merrily in the blood as the instinct of picking out houses for other people, houses that you yourself do not have to live in, and those realtors whom we have dismayed by our lack of enthusiasm would have been startled to hear the orotund accents in which we vouched for that property, sewage, messwage, and all. Here, we cried, is the front door, facing the sunset, where the postman will call with checks from your publishers, and here are the porcelain laundry tubs that will make glad the heart of the washerwoman, when you can get one. Endymion's guileless heart was strongly uplifted. Not a question did he ask as to heating arrangements, save to show a mild spark in his eye when he saw the two fireplaces. Plumbing was to him, we saw, a matter to be taken on faith. His paternal heart was slightly perturbed by a railing that ran round the top of the stairs, this railing, he feared, was so built that small and impetuous children would assuredly fall headlong through it, and we discussed means of thwarting such catastrophe. But upstairs we found the room that caused our guest to glimmer with innocent cheer. 
It had tall casement windows looking out upon a quiet glimpse of trees. It had a raised recess very apt for a bust of Pallas. It had space for bookcases, and then on the window sill we found the dead and desiccated corpse of a swallow. It must have flown in through a broken pane on the ground floor long ago, and swooped vainly about the empty house. It lay pathetically close against the shut pane, like a forgotten and unuttered beauty in the mind of a poet. It lay there, stiffened and silent. End of chapter 29